Today on Onward to Victory, a special 1980s-themed episode sends us down the rabbit hole surrounding a controversial Indianapolis Star headline, all while exploring the tenure of one of the least noteworthy and successful coaches in Notre Dame football's recent history. Buckle up those chin straps, grab those G.I. Joes and Cabbage Patch Kids. We are heading to the 1980s. This is Onward to Victory. Football fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and I am the host of this show, and this is episode number 46. Thank you for electing to spend a little bit of time with me today, wherever it is that you are joining from. And as I always like to say, I think I have a really good one here today. It's an era that we haven't really talked much about in show history, and I suppose 46 episodes now in, uh, this is some uncharted territory. But as I sit here today, we are a mere 63 days to the Irish kicking off the 2021 season down in Tallahassee against the Florida State Seminoles. In addition, the NCAA has formally adopted an NIL, or a Name, Image, and Likeness Policy. This is groundbreaking stuff. The ramifications of this are fairly, let's just say, expansive. Uh, We have discussed this on the show before, actually, but I'll save how it could possibly help or hurt the Irish for a future episode. After writing down some of my thoughts, I think the Irish stand to gain much more than they could ever lose as a result of this new policy, but that will be saved for a different day. Now, if you haven't already, go back and listen to the previous episode. I covered the origins of Rockne, Texas which was named posthumously for the ever-so-famous Irish football coach. Yes, indeed, you guessed it. But I thought it was an incredibly interesting story and a really, really interesting history. So go back and give it a spin. You surely won't regret it. Now, that episode actually marked the two-year anniversary of the show, which, of course, the show could not continue without the support of you all. So thank you again. And there was a Facebook contest to mark the occasion. And so, sorry if you're not of the Facebook persuasion. As it were, it just kind of seems like that's where most of the listeners kind of are and get their show news. But anywho, the rules were very simple. I just asked you to send the show a message about, I guess, well, anything. It could be about your favorite episode of the show, your favorite Irish player, memory, or just helping me ring in the anniversary for the show. And if you did, you were put into a drawing to win a Chris Zorch autographed postcard of the 1988 National Championship team donated from our good pals at Augie's Locker Room. I heard back from several of you, and a few of you gave permission to read your correspondence on the episode. So here we go. Leading off, my pal Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, sent the show the following. Awesome show. So glad I stumbled on this podcast. I have been a huge Notre Dame fan since birth, and I thought I was pretty knowledgeable to the history of Notre Dame. 
I look forward to every episode to learn something I never knew or add to what I already have learned. I can't thank you enough for all the work and effort you put into your podcast. After I heard the Rockney Conspiracy episode, I have become infatuated with anything and everything Rockney. Keep up the good work, Alex. Happy second anniversary to the show and hopefully many more to come. Go Irish. Thanks, Brad. I really appreciate that. And I would be remiss not to mention again, if it weren't for Brad's tip on Rockney, Texas, the last episode would have been about something very different. And frankly, I had no idea about Rockney, Texas. And hopefully, if you listened to the uh, last episode, maybe you've all learned something too. I also heard from Justin Wise, currently living in North Carolina, who wrote me the following. Hi, Alex. I've been listening for only the last couple months, but Onward to Victory has become a staple ingredient in the cocktail of Notre Dame podcasts that I regularly consume. Boy, I like that. I appreciate the in-depth storytelling and your research on the history of the Notre Dame program. In particular, the George Gipp 100 Years Later and the Memorial Day episodes are my favorites thus far. I intend on continuing to listen through all the episodes. Enjoying your work very much. Keep it going and go Irish. Justin, I appreciate the message, and go Irish indeed, and it's good to hear from you, pal. And it's always nice to know that there's a new listener. All right, friend of the show, Jared Bowlby, an ardent Irish fan himself, also wrote the show. Very cool episode. I'm also like you and don't miss a Notre Dame game no matter what. I've missed weddings because of it. That's pretty hardcore. Non-Notre Dame fans just don't get it. It's a way of life, and we truly love it. He said, I went to Augie's about a month ago and bought a couple of Rudy bobbleheads for my collection. Thank you, and go Irish. Thank you, Jared, and glad to hear you recently saw my pal Augie. I actually saw him last week myself, and man, what an awesome, awesome dude. Oh yeah, and I understand well the juggling act that the fall brings with all these Irish football games. And finally, I received an awesome email from Alfred Rodriguez of San Antonio, Texas, that read... Good morning. I just listened to your podcast on Rockney, Texas. I've lived in San Antonio my whole life, and I have never heard of Rockney, Texas before. We live just about an hour and a half or 88 miles from Rockney. Very interesting story and history, and thank you for the episode. Alfred continues. As much as I would love to win the 1988 championship team postcard with the commemorative Knut Rockney stamp, it's not important. I just want to share this message for my dad. Roy. My dad passed away this past December, and today, the day in which he wrote the email, is his birthday. We would watch Notre Dame games together, whether live or past games on YouTube. I know I'm not the only one to experience this, but I wanted the opportunity to remember him on your platform. Notre Dame football Saturdays will not be the same without him, but I'll still be there supporting our Irish. Thank you for having the show, and as always, go Irish. Alfred also sent a photograph of him and his father, and man, I really appreciate the email, pal. It means a lot that you listen to the show, and even more that you captured the essence of being a Notre Dame fan, which is sharing it with your family, sharing it with others. If this wasn't such a special bond, I have to believe shows like this simply would not exist. So thank you again, Alfred, and to everyone who took the time to write the show. The winner will be announced over on Facebook. And just as a friendly reminder, this episode and all episodes are brought to you by our Consensus All-Americans. 
and that is Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey. Perhaps one of the biggest fans of the show. Thank you, Michael, and the aforementioned Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana. If it weren't for these two guys, I think the lights would have been pulled months ago to the show. They keep this show powered, and I make no bones about it. I will be discussing the Consensus All-American program in show wrap, as well as some show merchandise. So hang with me to the very end, but it's probably time to get this one underway. So, the 1980s sure were an interesting time in Notre Dame football history. If you bring up Notre Dame football, this was a decade truly of two poles. For half of it, you were on one side of the pole, which is to say a Lou Holtz-led program for the final four seasons of the decade, and he led the team to a cumulative 37-11 and 11 record, good for a winning percentage of 77% between 1986 and 1989, including one national championship in 1988. Truly, a great time in Irish football history. But we are going to be looking at the previous five seasons, from 1981 to 1985, I should say through 1985. At the time, the team was under the direction of Jerry Faust, where they netted a cumulative record of 30 wins, 26 losses, and one tie. Good for a winning percentage of just over 53%. And I'll say this only because I feel like it needs said I'm not villainizing Jerry Faust throughout this whole episode. In fact, Jerry, who's still with us, is a very, very kind man. And even though the era in which he coached was not highly regarded, so to speak, or not say the most successful of times for the Irish football team. He remains highly regarded by many Irish fans, and I think part of it is because he was just so daggone nice. But anyways, uh, so when Jerry Faust actually left the program, no coach in Notre Dame history had lost as many games as he had. That futility would later be broken by Charlie Weiss and his 35-27 and 27 record. Lou Holtz and Brian Kelly have also lost more games than Faust, but they also won games that are counted in the triple digits. So a little bit different there. For a program whose previous two head coaches were Dan Devine and Era Parsegian, just what in the hell happened? Just so it's clear again, I think it's really hard not to like Jerry Faust. He was genial, welcoming, hardworking. In fact, as best I can tell, it was Faust who first said the phrase that being the Notre Dame football coach is the, quote, second toughest job in the country. One fan even suggested he would be a dynamo as any other job at the university, just not as the football coach. And Faust also did have some talented players. It wasn't that the era was bereft of talent. For instance, perhaps the biggest star of the Faust era was none other than tailback Alan Pinkett. He left the school as the leading rusher in 1985 with over 4,100 yards. Which that mark, of course, stood until 1998 when Autry Denson surpassed the 4,300-yard mark. However, Pinkett's mark of 49 touchdowns still stand as the highest in program history. My goodness, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of pay dirt. But linebacker Bob Crable was a consensus All-American in 1981 during Faust's first season as coach. Coincidentally, Crable actually played for Faust when he was in high school. But at the end of the day, Faust was probably just not a great fit for that moment in Irish history. But as far as being a good fit or not, that actually has nothing to do with what 
many, most, if not all, of his critics pointed to as his biggest shortfall, and that is, yes, you are going to hear this correctly, he had never been a college head coach before. In fact, this was his first college job. And again, the, for theatrical effect, the man at the helm sandwich between Era Parsegian, Dan Devine, and Lou Holtz had never led a college football program. When you think about it, it's baffling. <laughs> but let's rewind to 1980 and figure out the why here. So, though Faust had never manned a college football program, he was a wildly successful coach, albeit in the high school ranks. Faust was the head coach at Moeller High School in Cincinnati from 1962 through 1980. Moeller, coincidentally where my father-in-law went, was and still is an all-male Catholic school. Faust started a junior varsity program there in 1960 with borrowed equipment. But soon, the Muller Crusaders would actually go an astonishing 178, 23, and 2. Again, 178 wins, 23 losses, and 2 ties during Faust's tenure as a head coach. This equates to a winning percentage of over 88%. Nine state championships, four claimed national championships. I mean, just absolutely dominant. And it was all under the tutelage and direction of Jerry Faust. And in 1980, he was named the successor to Dan Devine as Notre Dame's head coach. And he got a five-year contract. As you might imagine, the move called the, quote, bold experiment was met with some serious skepticism. And why wouldn't it be? This was, as Faust later said, the most the second most difficult job in the country, pardon me. But after having sent a number of his players to Notre Dame, including Crable and All-American receiver Tony Hunter, he was well aware of the workings of the program and undoubtedly had many connections in South Bend. Faust himself was also a Catholic. He played football at the University of Dayton under former Irish coach Huey DeVore. Jerry's father, Fuzzy Faust, coached at the Catholic Chaminade Julian High School in Dayton, Ohio. So I think if you're picking up what I'm putting down, this was the opportunity of a lifetime for a guy like Jerry Faust. And hell, his defender said, he's running Moeller High School, that's kind of like running a college football program anyway. But reputedly, when he saw his first Notre Dame football schedule ahead of the 1981 campaign, which included five ranked opponents, Faust said, quote, I hope my lifelong dream doesn't end in a nightmare, he said during a press conference. So heading into the 1981 season, the Irish were ranked as the number four team in the country. But a five and six finish tumbled them outside the top 25 by week three. An inauspicious start, I would say. But the 1982 season began and carried a lot of promise. After eight games, the Irish's record stood at 6-1-1, one, and one, and they had clawed their way to number 13 in the national polls. And they were defeating some legitimate opponents. In fact, they defeated the 7-0 Pitt Panthers, who had the phenom Dan Marino under center. I know everyone's heard of him. He needs no introduction. 
But after the Pitt game, losses to Penn State, Air Force, and USC sent their season record to 6-4-1. And, and another season finished outside the top 25. Again, just as you thought, the wheels were churning in the right direction. Things improved slightly for Faust and the Irish in 1983 and 1984 with identical 7-5 and five finishes in both years. And if things are improving slightly with 7-5 and five finishes, that probably tells you a lot about the era. Perhaps one of the Irish's biggest stars at this time, not named Alan Pinkett, was quarterback Steve Berline, who had a long NFL career. But damn, again, this is Notre Dame football we're talking about, and patience was wearing thin, as you can imagine it would be. Now, on to the fifth year of the Jerry Faust Bold Experiment, 1985. All right, first, though, this is a 1980s-themed episode, so let's set the stage a little bit. Here's what many of the songs kind of sounded like during this time. All right, that was, of course, Final Countdown, though not by the band Europe, because if I use the actual track from the band Europe, I would probably get sued, which I don't have time for right now. But that actually carried a lot of the signature themes of 80s music, which was synthesizers, heavy-handed drums, uh, very loud guitar, and even louder hair, so to speak. I know you know what I'm talking about, but... Let's continue to set the stage. Here are some fun facts and events about the year 1985, courtesy of popculturemadness.com. Now, admittedly, first, I am uh, was born in the 80s, born in 1987 to be exact, so I'm definitely more of a child of the 90s. However, a lot of this stuff is very, very familiar to me, but let's take a walk down memory lane. So in 1985, Microsoft Windows 1.0 was released. How about that? The top song was We Are the World by tons of famous singers and artists. You've probably heard it. The movies to watch include one of my absolute favorites, Back to the Future, The Color Purple, The Breakfast Club, and Desperately Seeking Susan. The most famous person in America was Phil Collins. The Gipper himself, Ronald Reagan, is inaugurated for his second term as president. And in world events, the mayors of Carthage and Rome met to formally end the Third Punic War after only 2,131 years. The most popular Christmas presents of the time are Swatch Watches, which admittedly, that's one. I had no idea what it was. Still don't. But uh, Super Mario Brothers on Nintendo. Now, there we go. She-Ra Princess of Power action figures, G.I. Joes, Cabbage Patch Kids, Care Bears, Teddy Ruxpin, My Buddy Dolls. Actually, I don't know what that is either. Pound Puppies and the Wheel of Fortune board game. Perhaps some of you remember receiving some of those from Santa Claus, or for perhaps some of you remember gifting those to others. But anyways, let's, let's continue to move on with the 1985 edition of the Fighting Irish. So Faust Notre Dame squad, again with Burline and Pinkett at the forefront, 
and a young Tim Brown on the come up dropped a 20 to 12 decision in Ann Arbor in week one. So to be fair though, Michigan would finish the 1985 season as the second ranked team in the country. So to go into Ann Arbor and only lose by one possession, I guess as far as losses go, that would be considered a quality loss to the eventual number two team in the country. Week two, though, the Irish have already fallen out of the top 25. But they would beat a fairly mediocre Michigan State team that week. Which brings us to week three, September 28th, 1985, against Purdue in West Lafayette, Indiana. This game was now looming, and we can talk about this one with a bit more pep since Purdue is back on the schedule this year. So, Faust teams had gone 2-2 two and two against the Boilermakers, and this is, of course, the Shillelagh game. If we're talking about Notre Dame trophy games, this is certainly one of them. Now, to date, Notre Dame leads the series 56-26 to 26 with two ties. Purdue had won the season before on a close 23-21 contest, and if they won in 1985... It would mark the first time they had won consecutive bouts with the Irish in 16 years. And again, this was a game that used to be played, as many of you are probably aware, every single year. It was one of those games and rivalries that kind of suffered because of the ACC partnership that the football team inked. But the game itself was an absolute disaster for the Irish resulting in a 35-17 loss to the in-state rival, which dropped them to 1-2 on the season. 35-17 makes it actually seem closer <laughs> than what the game was, and it, the contest was absolutely marred with terrible play and mistakes for the Irish. Pinkett rushed for 45 yards on 21 carries, so just over 2 yards per carry, and Purdue quarterback Jim Everett, there's a name many of you might remember, completed 27 of 49 passes for 368 yards. I mean, he's just tossing it all over the field. The paper later said that Notre Dame's nickel defense wasn't worth a penny. Ouch. Purdue safety Rod Woodson actually sealed the game in the fourth quarter with a pick six. And I am obligated to now share that Woodson is a Fort Wayne native who attended Snyder High School, where I and five of my brothers also played football. One of which, Dylan, my brother, actually passed Woodson en route to becoming the school's interception leader. Not for nothing, but Woodson would have a Hall of Fame NFL career, as again, many of you are probably aware. Anyway, the game absolutely stunk. How bad did it stink, you ask? How far had Notre Dame football seemingly sunk? Well, the September 29th, 1985 Indianapolis Star ran the following headline in great, big, bold, front-page lettering. Boilermakers crush Notre Dame. <laughs> yes, that is dumb. D-U-M-B. So one more time here for dramatic effect. <laughs> what a pearl-clutching headline that was. But uh, yes, that's D-U-M-B. So imagine if that were to happen today. <laughs> Social media would be uh, on absolute fire. 
as it were, the faux pas, whether it was intentional or not, was carried by papers in at least six different states as well. Now, to the Indy Star's credit, they tried to get out ahead of this, and they kind of answered the question of whether it was an intentional slip-up two days later when they issued an apology on October 1st, 1985. That read, quote, To many sports fans, Notre Dame identifies a famous football school. But the term has religious significance. Notre Dame is a French phrase meaning Our Lady. The reference is to the mother of Jesus Christ. In a misplaced attempt at wit, the star sports department unintentionally offended people of sincere religious conviction by referring to the football team as Notre Dame. It was inexcusable. We apologize. End quote. <laughs> Ooh boy. Apology or no apology, the good folks at the Indianapolis Star really had to take their medicine with this one. Here are just a few of the angry letters to the editor that were published in the October 6th edition of the paper. Now, in a letter just titled, Shocked, from Dr. R.A. Truma of Indianapolis, he says, My daughter and I are both Purdue graduates and strong Purdue supporters, and we are not Catholic. But our family was shocked by your sports section headline Sunday calling Notre Dame Notre Dumb. This is in very poor taste, regardless of what your staff writer Bill Benner or your sports editor might thought have thought of the Notre Dame football team's play on the field. Their attempts to be clever should not override decency. End quote. Now, this guy, Robert Barnes, also of Indianapolis, seems like he is a Notre Dame fan. And perhaps an alumni too, but uh, just as just since this is kind of touched on in a number of the uh, letters, Bill Benner, who wrote the game recap, did not write the headline, and the star tries to make that very very clear. But uh, I'm also under the impression that this guy Robert Barnes may not be the biggest Jerry Faust fan either, because he writes, "quote Notre Dame alumni have had to endure much in the last five years," which is the exact era of Jerry Faust, but they should not and will not endure a stupid insult to the great name of the university, end quote. So I could go on and on reading these because there is an entire page, uh, actually onto a second page of letters to the editor about this, but this one's just too good. This is from Mary Jo McDonald, also of Indianapolis. And while she may not be a huge Jerry Faust fan herself, she's clearly not a fan of another very famous head coach based in Indiana. Now, here you go. I'll, you probably will be able to pick up who she's talking about here. She says, quote, I would rather lose with a coach who has the character and integrity of Jerry Faust than win with a Barry Switzer or, even worse, a chair-throwing basketball coach, end quote. So while the Indianapolis Star probably learned a little bit of a lesson that even when Notre Dame is not having a great season, you probably shouldn't outright insult the school because the fan base will come for you the damage really was done and there was a sentiment brewing and i think the washington post boiled it down effectively in an article written a couple weeks later when william gildeo wrote quote the newspaper being the indianapolis star that is published an apology and received a number of letters criticizing the headline as tasteless but the incident only served to punctuate for many the depth of Notre Dame football's decline, end quote. 
When speaking about Faust in the state of Notre Dame football, the Washington Post article concludes, quote, He's a man for Notre Dame, all right, but the football season hasn't turned out as he thought before it began when he said, It's been a little frustrating to both the players and the coaches not to finish with a better record the last four years. But I've always had a philosophy that there's a reason for everything. And many times as the ball has bounced against us, our turn will come and it'll bounce our way. We're just that close to being where we want to be. And I think all of us can see it coming. But it hasn't, leaving Notre Dame in these brilliant autumn days with its football mystique intact, but its precious magic missing." End quote. So to the surprise of probably nobody, Jerry Faust's contract was not renewed, and after his five years were over, he left South Bend. Now something that I try to stress when we're talking about you know, the past and history and all that is, you know, put yourself in that position. Now it's easy to look at the Jerry Faust era now because we know exactly what's coming. The Lou Holtz era, which was an extremely prosperous time for Notre Dame football. However, if you were to put yourself in that position the day after Jerry Faust, is, it's announced that they're not renewing his contract. There's a lot of uncertainty, and, and I'm not trying to paint a revisionist history picture here, but, but think about it this way. Pretend you're a Notre Dame fan in 1985. You've just went through five years of Jerry Faust in what was very, very average, mediocre years, and for Notre Dame even more so. And it's announced that Notre Dame has hired a gentleman by the name of Lou Holtz, who had spent the previous two seasons with Minnesota. And though he had oh, seven or so very fruitful years in Arkansas, his two years in Minnesota were not great in 1984 and 1985. In fact, he had a sub-500 record. You know, what would you have thought as a Notre Dame fan? Oh, we're trying another bold experiment, or we're getting a guy who doesn't have the greatest of most recent track records. However, it was Lou Holtz who was hired to be the Notre Dame head coach starting in 1986. And that 1986 was not great, a 5-6 record. But 1987 through the, virtually the rest of his tenure, you're looking at a 95-24-2 record from 1987 through 1996. So, though... The hire of Holtz may not have looked awesome from the onset, which was a fact that a lot of people pointed out even then. Boy, did Notre Dame choose the right guy right after the Jerry Faust era ended. And truthfully, it is because of the Holtz era that we can, in 2021, look on the Jerry Faust era with a little bit of fondness because we know, again, since we have this very neat timeline worked out for us already, we know exactly what comes after the Jerry Faust era. Uh, I'd be remiss not to mention that Jerry Faust has a really good book about Notre Dame football and his time there, and it's called The Golden Dream, and it's by, again, Jerry Faust. But if I may, I'm going to read you the synopsis of it real quick because I do think it sums up this time in Notre Dame football very well, actually. So again, the book is called The Golden Dream by Jerry Faust. And the synopsis reads, Jerry Faust won more hearts than games. He came to Notre Dame as the high school coach from Cincinnati's Moeller High School. Such a perfect fit for Notre Dame that it seemed almost too good to be true. It was. Faust admits his mistakes, which include the manner in which he put together his first coaching staff, changing Notre Dame's offense, even feeling sorry for himself. 
He explains how he could beat Southern Cal, but not Air Force and Purdue. An optimist to the end, Faust took on, if anything, an even greater challenge when he left Notre Dame. He became coach at the University of Akron, a program where, unlike at Notre Dame, not everyone wanted him to succeed. All right, and I will be right back for show wrap. How about a little bit more final countdown? I hope you really enjoyed that for obvious reasons. That's an era of Notre Dame football that's just simply not talked about as much. But again, it doesn't make it any less compelling or interesting. There were a lot of really good Notre Dame football players. And Jerry Faust, like I said, a wonderful human being by all accounts. Like I said, in, in a, obviously a good football coach. It's not like Jerry Faust forgot how to be a football coach. But like I said, maybe just not the right fit at that particular time for Notre Dame football. I'd like to thank once again the Consensus All-Americans, Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, and Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana. These are my pals, and again, they are the ones who sponsor this show and support it. And this episode was brought to you by these two gentlemen. Thank you both so much. If you're interested in becoming a Consensus All-American, that is a special sect of the show's listeners who support the show monetarily then please, by all means, shoot the show an email at onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com or jump over to paypal.me slash onwardtovictory or patreon.com slash onwardtovictorypodcast. You can make a one-time donation at PayPal. You can make a monthly donation at Patreon. The choice is yours, but please note that I really, really appreciate it. And if you're a Consensus All-American... I'll be sure to send you some show swag to your home or your domicile or wherever it is that you live and have a permanent address. And speaking of show merch, I actually have t-shirts and coffee cups hey, available. So if you're interested, please send the show a message on Facebook or send the show an email. Again, onward to Victory Podcast at gmail.com. I'll send you a catalog. They're very, very inexpensive, okay? I just want to get the show's name out there as we continue to grow. And there'll be more things available here soon. I'm kind of designing a few new exciting things. So so please, if you're interested, please support the show. Buy some merch. Tell your friends about it. Share the Facebook posts. Whatever it is that you can do to chip in, I am always greatly, greatly appreciated. This is a grassroots show, if not anything else. And it's pretty much grown exclusively through word of mouth. So I really appreciate it. Again, check the Facebook page at facebook.com slash onward to victory podcast. Give the show a like and a follow. That way you're updated to all the most recent show news. And I will be announcing the contest winner on the Facebook page as well. So again, jump over to Facebook, like and follow. And if you're not of the Facebook persuasion, again, I don't necessarily blame you. So if you're not, just make sure that whatever it is that you're listening to, if you're on an iPhone, you know, open that purple podcast icon, hit subscribe. That way you're updated to all the latest episodes. I release episodes on average about twice a month. So please subscribe. That way you're alerted to anything new that comes out immediately to your phone. I'd like to thank Joseph Rakish, whose song Knut Rockney serves as the show's theme song. If you're curious where you can find it, Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, wherever it is that you digest music. Again, the song is called Knut Rockney. 
And we are in the waning moments before football starts, so what's coming down the pike, so to speak? Well, I have a couple of show ideas, okay? So first, of course, is the annual uh, season preview, where I break down every position group, um, you know, the schedule, all of that. It tends to be one of the more popular episodes, which is which is fine. So the 2021 season preview will be coming down the pike here soon. But, you know how much the show loves George Gipp. I've actually acquired some, I don't think they're full-blown romance novels. But, however, there are a couple books out there that are fiction by nature that detail, at least again, fiction, the relationship between George Gipp and Iris Trapier. Now, Iris Trapier was George Gipp's girlfriend for a time. A lot of mystery and a lot of <laughs> intrigue surrounding this relationship that they carried on in 1920, which, of course, was the year that George not only was a first-team All-American, but it's also the year that he very suddenly died. Anyways, I might have to put together a George Gipp and Iris Trapier episode, and it won't even be for Valentine's Day. So, I'm not sure yet. That's just one of the ideas I have bouncing in my head. If you have strong feelings about that, one way or the other, let me know. I had the good fortune to visit South Bend not too terribly long ago, about a week or so ago, with my family for my girl's birthday. They turned six. This has become our annual late June trip uh, up to South Bend. So I was able to walk around campus. It got a lot going on, a lot of construction as always in the summer, but place looks just beautiful. I was able to pop into Augie's locker room, say hello to my pal Augie, I was also able to pick up some really neat things, including a 1945 postseason banquet program. So, you know, the uh, postseason banquet where, you know, they celebrate the team. I actually picked that up at Augie's, as well as a signed copy of Before Rockney at Notre Dame by Notre Dame luminary Chet Grant, which is a piece that is, I mean, both are very, very distinct, very unique, uh, almost one-of-a-kind items at this point. And I did so, and I spent less than 50 bucks, actually 45 bucks on both of them. So, you know, regardless of what your budget is, Augie has some of the top line, top of the line merchandise and just rarities and oddities in his store. But again, regardless of what your budget is, you could find yourself something at Augie. So next time you're in town, make sure you pop in. They're huge friends of the show. They're huge friends of mine, just personally, but they support the show a lot and we appreciate it. And well, that'll about wrap us up here. This was episode number 46 about the Jerry Faust era of Notre Dame football. So I will let you all go. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. Thank you so very much for hanging out with me today. And as always, folks, go. Irish. <laughs> <laughs>